Oh, good morning. Good to see you guys again. Ethan, thanks for uh, doing the MC spot this morning. The second biggest fear in America is death, surpassed only by what Ethan did this morning, the MC role. Um, public speaking is actually the, the biggest fear of Americans, and he just came up here and faced it. So thank you for doing that. Appreciate it. Um, this is a deeply rich passage. Like, it's crazy. It would take me six hours to preach through it if we went verse by verse. And if you'd like to do that, uh, I get I charge by the hour. But we're not going to do that today. Actually, today is our last time in Hebrews for uh, until the fall. Next week is Terry Coons. He's going to be coming up and preaching um, out of Hebrews. I won't be. And then Cole is going to come the week after. Then the week after that, we're going to start a new series for the summer that we've talked about kind of among our membership. And it has to do with what is membership, what is servant leadership, what is eldership, what does it look like for us to have those offices within the church. So we're going to do that from June 5th until the end of the summer, Labor Day. And so, uh, and then we'll head back into uh, Hebrews here by then. But as I was walking through this passage, like I said, it's incredibly deep and rich. Um, and in some ways, it kind of repeats itself from uh, the, the previous chapters. It talks about Jesus being the perfect high priest and all of that. When I uh, think about this passage, I focused in on one verse. And I think this one verse encapsulates the entire passage that we read today as well as the previous passages. And it's Hebrews 10:14. if you have your Bible. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And I want for you guys to talk about the nature, or for, for you guys to think about the nature of that single offering. Um, what is the affection that Jesus had for his Father in order to do this single offering? Um, I also want for us to think about what is the nature of being perfected for all time, that somehow Jesus' perfection and his finished work uh, applies to us, so much so that it's for all time, that somehow it is it's said that we are perfected for all time. Then lastly, I want to talk about what is the nature of those who are being sanctified? What is the nature of sanctification according to this? Uh, basically, my big thought is affection for Jesus is affection for all that is his, and we'll talk about that. But let me pray and ask God to uh, show up and really help as we're here this morning. Father, would you send your spirit on us in the name of Jesus to move in amongst us, to move our hearts, Lord, to move our affections. Lord, would you um, make clear the things that you want for us to, to see? I'm amazed, Lord, that you don't promise that we get another breath. You don't promise that will live through the end of this sermon, but you have promised that we are perfected for all time. And you have promised that we are being sanctified. And you have said that this offering that Jesus made is perfect. So Lord, would you cause our hearts to go into this place where we are worshiping Jesus, seeing him for who he is, seeing his, uh, his beauty, seeing his perfection, and that Lord, it would strike in us an affection for him that we would love him as a result. And I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. 
So I want to present a line of thinking as we're looking at this one verse, that, um, that by a single offering, he has perfected us for all time, those who are being sanctified. And I want to present this line of thinking when we read this, that in this passage, that Jesus is sufficient, like we see his, his perfection at the cross, right? But why is it perfect? Why is, is he being uh, juxtaposed against like all of these sin offerings and the offerings of bulls and goats and all of that? Why is Jesus' offering perfect when those things, they had to keep doing them? They weren't perfect. And I think that what we see is, as we walk through this is that Jesus had a desire to see God's will come about. He had a desire for obedience to his Father. And another way of saying that is that he had great affection for his father, so much so that he wanted his father's will to be done. Um, it says in Hebrews 4 that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and then sat down at the right hand of the father. So what you see is Jesus looking through the cross, this pain that he's about to endure, this sin that he's about to take on. But beyond that is his father in heaven, and he's looking to him, and that caused him great joy. He had affection in his heart for the father that drove him to the cross through it, and that God saw that, and he was pleased with that. Consequently, though, he juxtaposes, he compares Jesus to the Old Testament. And I want to do that for just a minute to help us uh, kind of build off of that. So Hebrews 10, 5 through 7 says that when Christ came into the world, he said, he's talking about the Father, he says, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. Why? Because they kept doing them again and again and again and again, and it wasn't doing any good. Like it would help for the moment, but it didn't satisfy God's will. Jesus says, a body you have prepared for me and burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. But then I said, look, I've come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Jesus took so much pleasure in his father and the things that his father desired that he was willing to do whatever. Do whatever. I'll, I'll go down and I'll become a human being. I'll take on flesh I will be the sacrifice. I'll become sin for, for these folks that uh, I'm going to die for so that your will will be done. He took so much pleasure in the sacrifice, and God took pleasure in Jesus' work, so much so that he was pleased to crush him. Those are mind-blowing words when one part of the Trinity is pleased to crush another part of the Trinity. But it's seen in his affection that he has for the Father. And um, I want for us to, just for a moment, to go back and compare the old, the old Covenant, the Old Testament, the tabernacle. So I have a slide of an acacia tree, if you would put that up there so we could take a look at that. This is a tree that is native to the place where Jesus was crucified. And those thorns are like several inches long, and they don't look comfortable at all. But when Jesus is the high priest, he's the one who's going into the, the Holy of Holies on behalf of us, we need to realize and look back to the tabernacle to find out what's happening. Like, why the crown of thorns? So if you remember, we talked about the tabernacle. The high priest had to go in one day a year. And that one day, the high priest did everything. All the other priests took the day off. It was the one priest who prepped everything. It would take him days before to prep all of the burnt offerings that he would do. He was the one who went in and lit the lamp. He was the one who made sure that the incense was, was 
incensing, smoking, right? He had to do all of that. But the thing that he did first was he had to sprinkle blood on his own self to go into this place, into the Holy of Holies. Remember, we talked about the veil is there, and it's this thick, this thick thing. And there's no split in it. You, and the, the way that he would get in there is he would cover himself with the blood of a, a goat or a bull that was unblemished, that was pure. He would cover himself with that. Then he would army crawl underneath this veil and sprinkle the blood onto the mercy seat, first for himself, then for the rest of the people of Israel. So this is what he was doing. He's exhausted. There's 17 sacrifices that he has to do. It probably took him 12 hours on the Day of Atonement. But he and he alone is the one that would go into the veil, into the place, first for himself, then for everyone else. Now, the crown of acacia tree thorns, these thorns would have been several inches long, and it's the only native tree that's to that place where Jesus was crucified. So we can pretty much be sure that it was an acacia tree that looked like this, that they made and formed a crown of thorns to go on to Jesus. Those of us who are familiar with Jesus' story, like they scourged him, they whipped him, and they formed a, a, a crown and jammed it down onto his head with these thorns. Now, it's pretty easy to see with these thorns, as sharp as they are, as long as they are, there would have been hemorrhaging, right? And the, the head bleeds a lot. I don't know if you guys have, who have kids, it, it takes like one corner of a coffee table to cause all-day ble bleeding, right? And here you've got a crown of thorns, multiple entry points of hemorrhaging, where it would have just been pouring down onto Jesus, the great high priest, does this make sense to you? The, the blood of bulls and goats, he had to sprinkle himself before he went into the tabernacle, into the presence of God. Jesus, the blood of the perfect sacrifice is pouring down onto himself. It's his blood. It's his perfection that is pouring down on, and that's how he was able to move into the presence of God. So we see that in Jesus looks at this and he says, Lord, even this is not good enough. The blood of bulls and goats, sacrifices, you have not desired sacrifices. Jesus says, I have come to do your will. This shows that Jesus came and God made him sin who knew no sin so that he might become sin for us and that we might become the righteousness of God. That he's coming to do God's will. This shows his, his willingness to come and, and fulfill his father's desires. God's will is at stake. You can return to the other slide, the out of the shadows. But when Jesus says, I have come to do your will, he's saying, I've, I love you that much. It's a definition of love. I don't know if you guys who are married, contemplating marriage, there is the affection and the, the emotion of love, but a true definition of love is that you want the other person's their dreams to come true. You want for their wishes to happen. You want for their will to come about. This is when Jesus looked at his father, this is what he wanted to have happen. He wanted his father's will to come about. It's obvious from scripture that Jesus worked his father's will from a place of deep affection for his father. John 14, 31 says this, I do as the father commanded me. I do his will so that the world may know that I love the Father. 
time after time after time throughout Scripture, you see Jesus walking. He is protecting his Father. He is championing his Father. He wants his Father to be glorified. He wants his Father's will to be done. The desires of the Father in heaven, he wants them to be brought out here in front of everyone on earth. That's a definition of love and affection. So what's missing from this interaction between uh, Jesus and his Father? I can tell you what's missing. A heartless, loveless, affectionless interaction between Jesus and his Father. It's just not there. He does this from a place of deep affection for his Father. I heard someone say this week, they're like, I won't get divorced because that's, that's not the right thing to do. I would not. Can you imagine your daughter's fiance saying that to, to you as a, as a dad? Like, I'm going to marry your daughter and I'm going to stay with her because it's the right darn thing to do. It's affectionless. It's like without love. That's not what's happening here. It's not someone that I want to party with that's going to just do the thing. It's not somebody that I want to hang around that's just going to do the thing. He wants his father's will to be brought forth. He wants his, uh, his desires to be brought forth. He was driven by affection for his father. Jesus simply said, I love the father, and the father loves him. In John 17, he says, I am in them. He's talking about us, and you are in me. He's talking about his father. And this is so that they, talking about you and us again, become perfectly one so that the world may know that you have sent me and you love them even as you have loved me. The, the love between the Father and the Son is un, unpenetrable, in, unbreakable. And the cross is an act of Christ to show that. He wants to bring glory to his Father. And the affection that Jesus had for God the Father was then imparted to us at the moment of our conversion. It's amazing. It says that it perfects us for all time perfects us for all time so that when God looks at us, it is translated through this loving relationship that Jesus has with the Father. So when he sees us, it's, it, it's not in a vacuum. It's through the love of Jesus that he sees us. So sometimes, even here at Redeemer, when I talk about like affections, talk about Jesus, it can be seen as like emotionalism, right? Well, I'm trying to like get emotional, or it's a letting down of like intellectual insight, and, and people can feel like it's watered down. Sometimes we just don't think it's the aspect of Christianity of which we should, we should focus on. Like, what is our affection for Jesus? There's kind of the view that Christianity is just a matter of right and, and wrong, but it's not a matter of the heart or affections. When I look at Jesus and when we look at Jesus, the Bible is very clear that we should love him, right? And it, yes, there's obedience, but is it deeper than that? Is there a place where our heart has become affected by him, where we love him? And sometimes we think, well, it's just a, a bunch of redemptive facts, and then we respond to those redemptive facts. I love redemptive facts. I love the fact that Jesus was historical, that there's a date and a time and a place where he died, and I love being able to geek out on the theology of what happened for us to be united in him and for his blood to atone for our sins and all of that, but if it doesn't lead to my heart, like having an affection for Jesus, it's going to go in the wrong direction. 
And why? Why would I say that? Because people don't make decisions based solely on what's right and wrong. I was reading this recent article. The article is the top reasons that dogs blow through invisible fences. Like, first of all, I can imagine you're questioning, like, why would you read that article? (laughs) It's pretty interesting. Like, there's a bunch of reasons why, you know, invisible fences are these, these wires that are buried underground, like around a yard or something like that. And they are um, mated to like a collar that's on the dog. And that collar can vibrate or it can make a little sound or something like that. But it can also shock, like send bolts of electricity into the dog. And there's reasons why the dogs don't, like they blow through. They don't stop where the invisible fence is at. And one, the first one is lack of training. But secondly, there could be low batteries on the shock collar. The invisible fence might be buried too deeply. Somehow it might be out of calibration. And fourth, the shock collar may only be set to vibrate. Like, you know, again, you're probably wondering why. Well, the interesting part, this couple in Ohio was watching their dog that they had just recently trained with this shock collar and the invisible fence. So they're looking out the window, and this dog is just pacing back and forth right at the edge of the invisible fence. And his collar is set to, like, whatever, like, stun, (laughs) break them down, right? Uh, the highest setting. But the thing that they were watching was this dog kept going back and forth, and they could see clearly that this dog was contemplating leaping across the invisible fence. Why? On the other side of the fence is another dog that's in heat, right? So there's this other dog, and this dog is contemplating, and like, what am I going to do? Here's the significant part. This dog finally made the leap, literally jumped over the invisible fence, and the shock collar was set so high, it knocked the dog out completely. (laughs) This dog was shocked into a coma by the invisible fence because he saw this dog on the other side. They laughed, and they watched this dog shake himself out of a coma, out of being knocked out, and then go and be by the dog that was in heat. I was immediately drawn to Hebrews 4, who for the joy set before him endured the shock collar so that he could go and be at the right hand of the dog in heat. (laughs) This dog simply illustrates how we live, right? This is how we live. We are... Rational beings, yes, but if we see something that we love, we're going for it. This is how we live. And this, this I mean, diabetes is a $3 trillion a year business. $3 trillion a year in this industry of fixing our love for sugar. We do things because we love them. We go after them because of our affections. Whatever we deem the most valuable, that's what we live for. Whatever we love, that's what we go and do. And so we ask few questions. Once we decide that we love something, we justify it, but we ask few questions. We just go for it. The Bible agrees and teaches this very concept when it comes to Jesus. We can keep rules and regulations for a certain amount of time, but they're going to fall short. They're not going to move us like our affections. Jesus simply says, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with what? All your heart, all your soul, all your mind. Some gospels say strength. With everything, loving God. It's a command. It's a fulfillment. It's a, 
shows how we live, that God gets to the heart of things. Matthew 10, 35 brings this to the place where we don't want to water this down. We don't want to just breeze over this. Oh, yeah, I need to love Jesus. Let's look at how Jesus talks about affection for him. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother. I've come to set a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. And Jesus starts to ramp up the language, and then he brings it in this concept. Whoever loves father or mother more than me, they're not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me, they're not worthy of me. See, the nature of our affection for Jesus, he says it's everything. Like, we don't just follow him in the sense of, like, I'm going to keep his commandments. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do everything I can to stay within these rules and these regulations and these guidelines. Jesus is like, no, 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 no. Love me. And do it with everything. And actually, if you love something more than me, then you're not worthy to follow me. Let's talk about this. What is the nature of our affection for Jesus? In essence, he tells us to love him more than anything else. Um, I was trying to think of the things that I love. I love my wife. I love my daughters. Um, I was wrestling with my daughter this week, and she was punching me. And, um, and I was like, honey, you're punching all wrong. You're going to hurt yourself if you punch somebody like that. Because she was just like kind of flat fisted. And I'm like, you got to squeeze these knuckles in because if you like hit my jaw, you could break these knuckles. And I don't want you to break those knuckles. So squeeze so that these knuckles are exposed. And then when you do it, drive into me. And she was trying to do this. And I'm doing this because I love my daughter. Like the human trafficking is at an all-time high. I want my daughter to know how to punch right? I do it because I love her, but the nature of my relationship to them, I'm not obeying my daughters. I don't trust my daughters. I would take a bullet for them. I wouldn't sell them for a billion dollars. Just the opposite. I'm building a house where they can flourish and grow and all of that, but I don't trust them. The nature of my love for my daughters is just different than Jesus. I don't cast my soul onto my daughters. Jesus says that whoever loves something or someone more than me, they're not worthy of me. If you don't have affection for Jesus, you don't have Jesus, is to put it another way. Uh, he talks about um, if God were your father, then you would love me and you would receive me. So if you love God the Father and you don't love Jesus, then he's saying that's not really, you're not loving God the Father because he said, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from him, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, and he, he sent me. I was talking with a universalist guy who I actually used to work with at a church, and it was so discouraging. He was like, I don't need to focus in on Jesus or talk about him that much, because aren't we all loving the same God? This dude has just, his faith has just taken him away from the centrality of Jesus, and I was like, how can you say that when Jesus says that you need to love him or you're not worthy of him? Jesus was good. He was a prophet. He was, do you really love him? No, I guess I don't. Like, ah, it just broke my heart. 
any religious system that says that you can love God and not love Jesus and don't do anything with him, it's a false teaching, Jesus says. The litmus for knowing that someone loves God is that they love Jesus the same way. If you love Jesus, you love the Father. So where does this affection for Jesus come from? Right? We see him, we value him, but where does it come from? In this relational context, Jesus loved us first. So Hebrews 10:14, by a single offering, he's perfect, brings glory to God with his perfection to do the will of God. Then it says, uh, response to that is he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That Jesus has perfected us for all time. That affects us. It affects us in our affections. That we love Jesus because he loved us. It's loving him more than anything because he loved us so much that he gives, he gives us perfection. Hebrews 4.16 4, says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Where does our, our affection for Jesus come from? It comes from the fact that he loved us. Do you know that you belong in the throne room of heaven because of Jesus? You belong there. We belong in the presence of God because of what Jesus has done. He's made us perfect. We belong with him forever. Worship and affection for Jesus is simply returning to this. In Revelation 4, let me talk about the throne room in which you belong. It says we can draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. And Revelation 4 says that John, he was in the spirit, and there was the one who had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and he was sitting on a throne, and there was 24 thrones and 24 elders clothed in white garments, and then there's these, these huge supernatural creatures with eyes all over the place, and there's flashes of lightnings and rumblings and peals of thunder and seven spirits of God, seven torches of fire, a sea of glass, which is like crystal. This is where you belong. And this place that is the throne room is the epicenter of, of holiness and purity. It stands above all of creation. Like When we think of the holiest place on earth, it compares in no way to the holy, holiness of the throne room of God in heaven. There's no sin in the throne room of heaven. There's nothing, there's no darkness, there's nothing nefarious in the throne room of heaven. And that's where you belong because of Jesus. You belong there. You can draw with, near with confidence to the throne of God because of Jesus. Because of Jesus, this is where you belong. So let that affect your affections. He made you perfect forever because of his sacrifice. Can you receive this truth today? Conversely, 1 Corinthians 16 says, if anyone does not have love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Isn't that crazy? So Jesus sees through all of the, the sacrifices, the sacrifices in the Old Testament were just obedience. He sees through that. He sees that God doesn't receive those things because God's will is on the line. Jesus fulfills that will. And Jesus says, a proper response to me is to have affection for me. Not worthy if you don't love him. So where does this love come from? Simply, those who have been forgiven much love much. Those who have forgiven, been forgiven little, love 
little. Um, I'll talk for just a minute about emotions. Uh, some say that love is just purely an emotion. And some say that love is just purely an action. I think it's both. That love is both a noun and a verb. But what do you do with the emotion part of love? And I would say, like anything else in your entire life, you submit that to Jesus. Your feelings can't be trusted, but they point to Jesus who can be trusted. And Jesus commands the emotion all over, our emotions all over Scripture. Colossians 3, put, it, put, in, put on then as God's chosen one, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. He's commanding us to have compassion. Colossians 3, let the peace of God rule in your hearts. It's a commandment of your emotions. Ecclesiastes, remove grief and anger from your heart. The only place I can find in Scripture where it is repeated, uh, a commandment is immediately repeated upon itself, is rejoice. It's an emotion. Uh, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. That God has commandment over our emotions. That God has commandment over our feelings. And it's, it's not like he's saying, you know, do not lust. Again, I say, do not lust. He is doubly commanding an emotion. Rejoice in what? The Lord. Why? Because he had such affection for the Father that he did his will, and he did it perfectly in this single offering, and then made us perfect forever. And God's will for those of us in Christ is that we are made perfect for all time. And yet, we are being sanctified. The last part of Hebrews 10, 14, we are being sanctified. And I want to define sanctification in this context. So we are made perfect. That means we stand before God through Jesus and his work, perfect. When God sees us, he sees perfection because he sees Jesus on us and in us. But we are also being sanctified. It's kind of a hard thing to understand until you think about it in terms of affection. Like we have been made perfect through Jesus' sacrifice, but our affections are always growing toward Jesus. We're always growing. And we're growing in what? In the things that Jesus loves. Sanctification is simply having affection for the things that Jesus has affection for. We're growing in our affection toward all that is Christ's. We're continually growing from one degree of glory to the next degree of glory in our affections to all that is Christ's. Jesus was fully sanctified. His heart, his affections were trained toward his Father without any kind of darkness. He did his Father's will. Father, your will be done. This simply means that Jesus loved his Father and everything that belongs to his Father. The Father had his will and desires that he wanted to see brought to fruition, and Jesus did that, and he did it happily and willingly. Do you want what God wants? Think about that. Do you want what God wants? I was walking through some scripture this week with someone, gouge out your right eye, cut off your right arm in in the context of sexual sin. Do you want that? That's God's will for you, is that your soul would go into heaven even if you have, are missing an appendage. Is that what you want? Is your desire to see that happen? Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven 37 says, 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. The greatest commandment. Our primary mission is to love God, is to love Jesus. You can't get underneath that. That plays out in our lives. When we love Jesus, we start to love the things that he loves, and it affects the things that we do. Growing in our love for him is, yes, it's growing in our affection for him, but it also is growing in the way that we obey him because we love the things that he loves. John 14 simply says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments because you'll be loving what I love. Now, affections themselves are transformational. The acts, they're not as transformational. Like, we can agree with God and we can move with him, but it's our love for him that's transformational. It's because we are treasuring him above all things. And because of that, you start to do all that he asks, and you get joy from it. So let me ask you this. Let's do a little litmus test in our last couple of minutes here. Scale from 1 to 100, okay? What about God's desires for those people that don't know Jesus to come to know Jesus? 1 to 100, where would you put yourself on there for having affection for what God wants? 1 to 100. Well, how do you know that God wants that to happen? 1 Timothy 2.4, God who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, Okay? One to a hundred, where is your desire match up with God's desire? When's the last time that you told somebody about how incredibly good Jesus is? When's the last time that you had someone who is not a believer and you had a conversation with them or you had them into your house or you talked with them about the things of Jesus or you found out about their life to, to see what Jesus wants you to bring into their life, into that conversation? What is your affection toward this? One to a hundred. He desires all people to be saved. He desires for them to come to the knowledge of the truth. That's his desire, but where's yours? Right? Jesus desires that this place be filled with stories of new people coming to know him, coming to a saving knowledge of the truth of him. Uh, I was with another member of Redeemer this week, and we talked with a self-proclaimed atheist and um, just the fact that we went over and talked with him, it was pretty amazing. Like, I, I was like, as soon as he said, I'm a self-proclaimed atheist, I didn't know where this was going to go. Um, usually, I, I would tend to think that he's like, kind of like, uh, doesn't want to talk about things that are spiritual and is angry or something about God. But as we talked with him and we prayed with him, he said, I really feel your compassion for me. And we're like, oh, well, that's God putting his compassion onto you through us. Like, we just desire for people who don't know Jesus to come to know Jesus. We let him figure out all the, the intricacies of it and all the details of it. But where are you at? One to a hundred. I'm not a hundred all the time. I got to be honest, but where are you at in desiring this? What about how we treat each other? One to a hundred. Matthew 18, 15. If your brother sins against you, Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. This is what Jesus desires for our church. One to a hundred, where are you at? Do you desire to bring glory to this, uh, this church that is, belongs to Jesus? It's his bride. 
It's his people. Do you desire to bring glory by being unified with people that are around you? To speak truth to one another and not hold bitterness toward one another. One to a hundred, where are you at? When's the last time that you went someone to gain them as a brother, to win them over by just you and them alone? You said this, I didn't understand it. I want to come and, and reconcile with you. One to a hundred, where are you at? Gossip and slander. What if, where are you at when you hear someone gossiping and slandering about somebody else? The Bible says, speak the truth to one another in love. It says, do not slander, do not gossip. I've heard this illustration. Gossip is like you take a, a feather pillow, you rip it open, you go out in the wind and you just start flapping it and all those feathers go everywhere. And the problem is, is that once they're out there, it's really, really difficult to go and find every feather that's flying around in the wind. That's what gossip and slander is. They're like feathers that fly from a pillow. They scatter, they float, they move about. You can't get it back. It's really, really difficult. Where are you at on that? When, when someone comes to you and they're complaining about somebody else, how often do you say, hey, I think you should probably go and talk with them. Actually, we should probably stop talking because this is gossip, right? One to a hundred, where are you guys at with that? Do you ever quote this verse to them, Matthew 18? Let's respond. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave it there. Um, I'm going to have our response teams come forward, and we're going to sing. We're going to take communion. Um, and what I want for us to really think about during this time of communion is what it's like to desire what God desires, to desire what Christ desires. So put yourself on that scale, one to a hundred. Think of the, the places that, where there, God has said specific truths about each other, about yourself, about what life is like uh, missionally. Um, put yourself on that scale and then talk to him about that. Where do you want me to grow? I'm at a 20 here. I want to be an 80. I think you want me to be a 100. So let's move me from one end of the scale to the other. But I want for this to happen within the context of you having a, a deep affection for Jesus and a deep affection for what Jesus has affection for. So please, as we're taking communion, uh, 1 Corinthians 11 says to take a time and, and, and take a look at this, take a look at your heart. Verse 28, let a person examine himself and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So one, if you're not a believer, the Bible says just let this time pass by. Don't take communion. But if you have also examined yourself and you're like a 10 and you don't want to go to an 11 on the scale of whatever it is that God's putting on your heart, examine yourself. Ask God to help move. But maybe this would be a time when you wouldn't take communion. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. This is how God talks about this moment of communion. When we take the bread and we take the cup, he, he does it in such a serious nature. So where is your affection for Jesus? Where is your affection for the things of Jesus? Take a look at your own affections now as we do this. So our response teams will 
bring the, uh, the bread and the cup out and we'll come up to the front and you'll grab a piece of bread, dip it into the cup, and then in that moment will be the time where you worship and you remember what Jesus has done for you. So let me pray and we'll get to it. Father, would you move and change our affections for you? Wherever we're at, Lord, in our affections for you and the things that you love and have affection for, Lord, would you move on us? You command our emotions. You command our affections. But I pray, Lord, that we would not, in disobedience, push against you commanding our affections. So, Lord, would you come and help? Lord, Holy Spirit, would you take the things that I have said and make them apply the way you want them to apply and the things, Lord, that you want for people to forget, just take them out of their minds right now in the name of Jesus. I want for you to move this room. I want for you to move in our hearts. I want for you to change our affections. And I pray this, that you would do this, Lord, Holy Spirit, in the name of Jesus who has made us perfect for all time and is sanctifying us. Amen.